All right, well, we're in a, uh, we're in a service, I mean, we're in a ser- sermon series called GPS, and we've been talking about it for the last two weeks. It's the last week of our sermon series, um, and we entitled that, we, we were talking about the global positioning system that we use every day, at least I do, or my wife does, and we talked about that in the last few weeks. Well, we enlightened that to what does that mean in the life of Jonah, because we're looking through the book of Jonah, And uh, so one of the recaps that we want to talk about, about the GPS is that God pursuits or pursuits for sinners, that his pursuit is for always reaching those who are far away from him. For us who have come to Christ, we are called sinners saved by grace, or we're in a position that's called sanctification position. It's called positional sanctification, which means that you're a saint. Even though you may not act like one at times, or I don't, we're still considered saints. We're positioned before God as saints. It has nothing to do with what we've done. It's what Jesus Christ has done. When he died on the cross for sin, there was no other hope but Jesus. And so when we're thinking about that, God's pursuit for sinners simply means that it's the, it's the people of God that are gathering together as the church to reach those who are far away. That's the local church's mission. If we're going to make disciples, the key before making disciples is you need to evangelize and tell people the good news. That's all that evangelism means, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we think about that, God was pursuing a city that was considered wicked in his eyes. When we, we see the word wicked or we see the word evil, it's nine times in the book of Jonah. And that particular word is ra in the Hebrew. Now, God also uses this word... In reference to Numbers chapter 11, when the people were complaining, when they were coming out of Egypt, going towards the promised land. In verse 1 of chapter 11 of Numbers, the word complain was, as it said in the Hebrew, it literally means evil in the ears of God. We know God not to have, he's not anthropocentric in that he has ears, but yet if he were to have ears, it's evil in his ears. So when we complain as his people, as we know in Philippians chapter 2, it says, do everything without complaining and grumbling. And so evil also we know was mentioned in chapter 4 when Jonah said that, God, what you're doing is evil. What was he doing? Trying to reach those who are far away from him. (laughs) He's trying to show compassion. So Jonah where some would say that he repented in chapter 2. I said last week, I don't believe he did. I think that he agreed to go with the mission that God called him to. But we know that God made it clear to us that Jonah didn't. We know in chapter 1 he didn't. And then chapter 2 he had to be eaten by a fish in order to be dealt with. And then after he was dealt with, he recognized that salvation comes from the Lord. And now we're here at chapter 3 and God's saying, okay, You just did a big old circle right back to the same old judgment, pronouncement of judgment. And that is, yes, I am sending you again, again, to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, we know, is 500 miles northeast of Israel. Where Jonah was going was 2,500 miles due west to a small town that we know or area in in southern Spain today. It's Tarshish. And so here he was going and he was detoured. He was rerouted, and then now God is recentering him. I don't know what you know, but when I use a GPS, and I think you know this too if you're using a GPS, and you have your address 
your, your, your destination set in and you try to look at the steps, you can look at a list or you can kind of scroll down toward the map and see where this particular GPS is taking you. Because depending on how you set up your GPS to avoid either tolls or highways, sometimes it takes you into back roads. And if it takes you into back roads, it can be a little bit longer. And so sometimes we scroll ahead to look to see where it's taking us. And you'll notice that a box comes up and it says recenter. And what it means is that it's trying to recenter you back to the spot where you need to be. And so often what I think, I think of Jonah in this situation is that Jonah was trying to get away from God, trying to set up his own agenda, and he was trying to go on his own GPS. God brings him back to his GPS and says, you need to get back with me. And Jonah, he stops at chapter 3. He doesn't try to get ahead of God. We don't see that until chapter 4. But if he were to scroll ahead, God would say, hey, get back to where I've called you. Where have I called you, Jonah? I've asked you to go back to where chapter 1 is. Go back to Nineveh and pronounce judgment. You know, the other day when I was taking my kids out for ice cream, um, there are parallel roads. I know main roads. Like where I live in Souderton, there are towns called Lansdale, Harleysville. Eric knows he used to live in Harleysville. You have all these different towns, but I don't know the back roads. I have no clue. I just know main roads. So I know where to get to certain spots. So the other day I was traveling and I took the wrong turn. Um, I made a left on a different road, and I was supposed to make a left over on 63, and instead I made it down over on Welsh uh, Road. And then my son goes, Dad, you're on the wrong road. I said, what do you mean? I said, isn't this where Freddie Hills is? He goes, no, it's on 63. You had to go down further. I told you, go down further. I hate when my kid's right. But I had to go down further. And so I went down. I said, I couldn't go down further. So I'm like at a place where I'm like, I don't know where I'm at. So I stop at a red light, and I'm like, doot, 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 put the GPS on, because I'm only like five minutes away. And this GPS takes me through back roads to where I'm like, oh, my gosh. And if I could look ahead, I know that I wouldn't even know where I'm going. I wouldn't even have a clue. I didn't know any of these back roads. It could have taken me to, I say, Jabip, but it wouldn't have been anywhere. It would have just been a place I wouldn't know. And here I was trying to figure out somewhere in front of me that I didn't know where it was going to take me. How about with God? Is it sometimes what we do, we want to know where God takes us, even though we have no clue where he's taking us. We don't even know what's going to happen. We have no idea what's going to change. We just want to know where God's going to take us. And hopefully it's a place where we can trust him. And if we don't trust him, we can say, God, hey, can we talk about where you're taking me? I don't, I don't like this road. I don't like that bumpy road. I see some potholes there. And God, I see uh, some construction going on. I don't think this is a good road for you to take me down. God's like, recenter, get back over here. Don't think about what's ahead. I got you here. Be faithful here. Obey me here. Don't try to figure out what's ahead. So there is a pothole. Can I figure, fi work that out? So what if there's construction ahead? Can I work that out? You don't worry about those things. You stay where you're at. See, Jonah had to come to that place. He had to be recentered. We don't look at chapter four yet. We're in chapter three, but he's recentered. And when he's recentered, he does something well because what he's doing is he's centered up and saying, okay, it's very clear. The author writes it here. The Lord in verse one of chapter three, it says, the Lord said to Jonah a second time, because why? The first time didn't go very well. 
he disobeyed, he was rebellious, he was, he was defiant in his heart, and he went the other way. Kind about it, just got up on a boat and said, you know what, I'm just going ahead. And here it goes on to verse 2, where he says this, Go immediately to Nineveh, that large city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So here we have two parallel chapters. We have chapter 1, where he, he calls him to go and pronounce it. But in chapter 1, Jonah turns around and goes the other way. But in chapter 3, it says the same thing. Go immediately. Gives him the same message. Turns around on his GPS, got lost, and comes back to the same spot. He's recentered. And it says this. In chapter 1, it says, proclaim against the city. This one in chapter 3 says proclaim to. Very important preposition in the Hebrew. Against means that God is pronouncing a general announcement of, of judgment that says they're going to get it. I'm going to deal with them. Judgment is coming. But in chapter 3, he reveals something. He says to, which to means it's a little more positive, saying I want to reach these people. Yes, I still have my judgment in order, but I want to reach these people. And so he lays that out to say that the two is important there in the preposition. Wherever you'll see in the Hebrew and the Greek that prepositions are more important than what we see in the English because it has a hidden meaning behind it. And so he's proclaiming this message with the intention to be compassionate. He was still intentional in being compassionate in chapter 1, but he drew a line. See, why is it that when God draws a line, he's being negative? But when we play football, baseball, basketball, or any sport, there are boundaries. You have to play within the boundaries. You play within the rules. When you do, then you're able to play well within those boundaries. You don't complain. Now, if you at least see the refs in a basketball game, you just see these guys pleading with the refs on every call. I mean, it was clearly a foul. And they're like, and then I'm like, why are you even talking to the ref? It was clearly a foul. You went like this to the guy. What are you trying to do? But the whole idea was that he was trying to make a case to justify that he had a reason for doing this. And see, too often, we don't think about boundaries as being good. We see as boundaries as I don't have the freedom to do what I want to do. Well, you have plenty of field in baseball. You have plenty of field in football. You have plenty of field in I mean, basketball court, and you have plenty in the hockey. You have it in soccer t today, even with the World Cup. Plenty of room to keep the ball within the boundaries. And see, God is saying, listen, here's the boundaries. Just go to Nineveh and just trust me on this. I have a plan. And so he goes on and he's sharing all of this because it's important. Because then in verse 3, it says, so Jonah went immediately to Nineveh. Wow. Before it says he went away, now he went to Nineveh. And as the Lord had said, now Nineveh was an enormous city. It required three days to walk through it. So here he's walking three days. And it goes verse 4. When Jonah began to enter the city one day's walk, he announced at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now listen, God sets these boundaries. He pronounces judgment. But I see grace upon these two verses. I see compassion, grace. You might think I'm crazy or I'm reading wrong or I need my glasses and read different words. But I don't because I see grace upon grace upon grace. Where do I see grace? That there was three days to walk through it. And he said just one day he pronounced judgment. He still has two more days to go. 
He's giving them time. And then I see God giving him 40 days to repent. That's a long time. It's a month and a half to think about where they're at. I mean, that's what's happening. And so you have to think and I have to think that right now it's like, wow, that is a lot of time. That's grace. That's compassion. God is setting that up. And see, when, when we're recentered, God is giving us an opportunity to focus and think about what we're supposed to think about. Something in our lives, something that could be sin, something that could be. See, here's what God was saying to Jonah. I'm still interested in this wicked city. I'm still interested in those far away from me. I am pronouncing judgment on them because I have a plan to redirect them. I've redirected you. I want to redirect them. I care about them. See, when God does this, he has compassion and he shows compassion. But I have a question for you. What causes the universal church, the local church, the parachurch or individuals to lose their passion and compassion to reach the lost? Let me ask you another question. What causes these entities to lose the spiritual fervor to proclaim the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, today? What is missing? What's happening? And see, just like Jonah, he decided to go in the other direction. He decided not to come in unity with God and his plan. He decided, I'm going away from this because I know God's going to be gracious and compassionate. So therefore, I'm leaving. But where was unity first started? It started here in chapter 3 when he decided to listen to God, obey God, and follow his plan. He still wasn't for it. He didn't care for it. Jonah, if he had his way, he would have that entire city destroyed. He would want God to do what he's ready to do in the time of Hezekiah in chapter 37 of Isaiah to smite the 185 Assyrians and just kill them. If it were up to him, that's where he was going because it's very clear he had no compassion. But when God instilled in him to say, follow me, I have a plan, it's not that Jonah had to agree with it. He just had to obey. So many of us, too, what stops us? Well, I wrote something here that I'm going to be vulnerable here. I know, that, I know what slows me down in my personal pursuit to reach those far away from, from God. I'm going to come right out. I, my sin. My selfishness. When I'm so consumed with my own life that I don't have time for others. You might think, wow, Bruno, you're really hard on yourself. No, I'm not hard on myself because I'm telling the truth. In fact, it doesn't discourage me. It's, I'm a sinner. It's okay <laughs> because I know God is still working on me. And I can smile because I know that he has a plan for me. I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's because of Jesus. I know what he's done to me and what he continues to do for me. I'm not discouraged by that. I'm encouraged because this is what I say to the Lord. I said, Lord, what is it in my life that's stopping me from having this compassion and this passion for others? What's stopping me, Lord? And the Lord, I want you to deal with it, Lord. What is that sin in my life? And so I I don't want to waste any time, Lord. I don't want to waste any time because I only have a short time here on earth. I want to make a difference for you, Lord, but I can't make a difference for you if I'm living in sin. Sometimes I don't even know what my sin is. But I'm saying, God, reveal it to me. I've done that many a times. I still continue to do that. I lost a, a childhood friend this past week. He's a kid that we hung out with. He, um, he just unfortunately drank so much that 
he drank himself to destroying his organs. 51 years old. Couldn't even, he had a heart problem, he had some liver problems. We talked last year. After we talked, we talked about our childhood. He was one of our best friends. Um, fortunately, that's where I grew up. I have a lot of, a lot of friends who are passing away from abuse. Um, it was hard. He would call me just about every day, and I would try to talk to him. And his sister, who we grew up with too, she came to Christ. She loves the Lord. She and I talk often, you know, when we get a chance. Like, not often now, but when we, were, when we first got saved, we talked often back about 30 years ago. And it was cool to see how we, we said the Springdale boys are still, it was a little community called Springdale in Stanford, Connecticut. And we said, but there's God's still saving some of them. <laughs> he saved me, he saved a few others. In fact, one guy who used to be pretty violent um, and would carry a piece in his, in, his, uh, in his socks and would walk around knowing we knew if anything happened, he had our back. Um, apparently he became a pastor. So see, God is doing a work. But God is still interested in, in wicked people. He's still interested in people who are far away from him. He, you and I were wicked before him before we came to Christ. We stood at a position with God, evil, an enemy of God. Not that we were evil, but we stood before God. And if you believe that, I hope you do, because the scripture says that, then you'll believe that God saved you from that, because you and I can't save ourselves. Remember, it's that depravity doesn't mean that we live out our depravity, but depravity simply means that we can't do anything to please God in, our, in ourselves for salvation. And so it's important for us to gather this in these first few verses, because as we, as we see the compassion, here's what God was talking about. He even said it to Jeremiah the prophet, if, uh, J- Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. This is what God said, because this was his intention from the very beginning. Let me read it to you. It says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I've intended to do to it. Meaning God would say that I'm pronouncing judgment, but I'm ready to relent. Not relent in changing his exhaustive foreknowledge, but in relenting and changing the pronounced judgment. And and going on further, do we have anything further or no? If not, that's okay. But that's what he was doing there because God was interested in reaching those. Now, here's another background that's very important. As Jonah was in chapter 2 to verses 1 and through 4 and into 5, you got to think about Jonah. He's coming out of this fish. The stomach acid, the acids and the, the acids that came from the fish in the stomach bleached his body, I would gather. It probably even caused some some potential scars and all that. But here he's coming out, proclaiming this judgment and looking like he just came outside of a fish. Not many can live to tell about it. Here he is, pronounced judgment. And here the people of Nineveh are looking at him kind of God-like, divine-like, someone who, would, who they would have to fear. So he's proclaiming this judgment that God has proclaimed through him. And here, just in that around time, there was a historical record of the sun having an it was eclipse that was forming over the sun during this time in that area of Nineveh. So here the people have experienced divine supernatural event. Here they're seeing eclipses happening, possible earthquakes, and here was this man coming out of a fish 
with his body showing forth, bleached like body, looking like he just came out of fish, pronouncing judgment. Now they're putting one and one, doesn't equal four, it equals two, that they're saying, wait a minute, we got to do something here. And this is what they did. This is what they did. In verse five, if, if you look at it and you read it, it says that um, they believed God. They believed God. And it's so important for us to understand that because most would say, well, that would seem easy for us today. But with God, at that time, many were not believing God. God was pronouncing judgment on his people, and they were not believing God. At the time of when Moses and they were walking through the wilderness and they were going towards the promised land, they were not believing God. Look with me, if you can, with Psalm 78, 17 17 through 22. Because what the Ninevites did was, it says that they immediately believed God, but here's what they said. It says, yet they have sinned. He's referring, by the way, this psalm is the psalmist writing from the perspective of the history of Israel, how throughout the years... God continued to deliver them, but throughout the years, they refused to believe God. It was considered rebellion, disobedience, evil before God. So in verses 17 through 22, it highlights this. It says, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and the streams were overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? They were complaining. They, didn't, they wanted the T-bone steaks, they wanted the filet mignon, and they got the manna. And they didn't like it, so they complained. And instead of being thankful to God that he saved them from a, from a nation that was destroying them, they were complaining that they weren't getting their rations well. In verse 21, therefore, when the Lord heard, remember Shama, when he heard, he was full of wrath. Why? Because they were disobeying. See, when I was saying last week about the Shammah was the covenant. But in, within the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, there's a condition. Obedience, blessing. Disobedience, cursing. He goes, therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, southern Judah, and then his anger was rose against Israel, northern kingdom. He's angry against his people and... Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. But here, a wicked people, a defiant people, a violent people believed God. How does that make sense to us? How is that possible that they believed God? Why, was that, why were the Ninevites different from God's people? Let me just share a few things here. I think they were desperate. They cried out to God in desperation. See, when we're at a place of desperation, we pray because we have no other choice. What did Jonah do? Jonah was desperate and he prayed. He was ready to die and he prayed. Sometimes that's what God has to allow in our lives, desperation for us to get serious. God was praying desperation on these people, proclaiming judgment, and they responded. They didn't have any bias They didn't try to figure God out. They weren't holding to any rights. The Bible simply says 
they believed God. In fact, it's a summary statement in verse 5 because then he, there's an explanatory in the Hebrew that explains verses 6 through 9 what actually happened. So we see repentance. But what is true repentance? See, that's what I want to talk about quickly today. Well, let me begin by saying what it's not. What is this true repentance? Well, what it's not is this. It's not behavior modification. It's not changing your behavior or my behavior. It's not simply covering up our sin or our wrongdoing and just changing our behavior. It's not weak. It's not negative. I said that earlier. I don't, I'm not discouraged when I find out that I'm a sinner because I know I'm a sinner. <laughs> that's, that's not hard to figure out. I know every day I wake up, I'm a sinner. But what I love is that God gives me an opportunity to change me. And he has hope. I have hope. I have grace. I have mercy. I have, I have the assurance of eternal life. If anything happens to me today, I will be in the presence of the Lord. Not because I have it all together, but because God does. And his son who died on the cross for my sin, that he paid an atonement that I couldn't pay. That's what I rejoice in. Guys, I gotta, it's not because I'm Italian. It's not because I'm excited about eating today because I'm on a diet. It's not the fact that I can't. I mean, that doesn't excite me. What excites me is that even though I'm a sinner, I know I have hope. I didn't have that hope before Christ. I lived in guilt, shame, anger, frustration. I have a scar on my hand that proves that. Because I punched my hand through a window at eight years old when I was angry. You know what was going after? My brother's face. Because I was angry. Today, I have joy. Not because I got it all together, because I don't. It's because God has it together. Jonah didn't catch that. But the Ninevites did. Because they were desperate and they believed. See, here's what, this is what happened. This is what it's not. And then, you know, Billy Graham even put an article out some years ago about repentance. And he spoke often of it when he spoke to over 200 million people. But he said, what first he said, first, repentance is not penitence. It's not penance. It's not a voluntary suffering of punishment for sin and does not necessarily involve a change of character or conduct. People who lie on the bed of spikes or throw themselves headlong on the ground are, are doing penance. But this act does not mean that their guilt has been absolved. Two, he says that repentance is not remorse. Judas was remorseful over his sin of betrayal of the Son of God, but his swallow regret led to suicide instead of to God because remorse is not true repentance. Thirdly, he says repentance is not self-condemnation. You may hate yourself for your sinfulness, but self-condemnation opens wider wounds of guilt and despair. We should hate our sins, not ourselves. Hate our false way, ways. Hate our vain thoughts. Hate our evil passions. Hate our lying. Hate our covetousness. Hate our greed, but never try to hate ourselves. Why? Because self-hatred leads to self-destruction. We see that often with suicide today, and it's rampant. It's wrong to destroy that which God has created in his image. So repentance is not self-condemnation. But we're seeing that in these particular verses, verse 6 here, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he, now he did four things here. Watch this now. He arose from his throne, took off his robe, and then what does it say? It says that he put on sackcloth, which was like a, like a, like a blanket made out of goat's hair for people who were mourning for their sin or mourning for death. 
they would place it over them and go into a solitary place of just resting and mourning and of confession and crying out, fasting. And then he sat on the ashes, which is humiliation, because pretty much when we die, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that's what we're formed of from the dust. And so God is saying to the king of Nineveh that bow down in in my presence, and he does. Here is an authority with a powerful nation, one who's violent and brutal, and yet he immediately responded with obedience, submission, and humility. This was a wicked man, a wicked nation, a violent nation, a people who would rip off lips from people or would take their skulls and crush them. I mean, these were violent people, yet he submitted. Why? Because he was desperate, because he recognized God's power. And then in verse 7, it says this, and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of a king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them feed, not let them feed or drink water. Pretty much everybody fast, even your animals, everybody fast. That's how desperate they were. They wanted God to approve or bless them or forgive them or remove this judgment. So they were willing to say, even if it came down to the custom of even animals not eating or drinking water. They were so willing to give up everything. And he says, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So this is what he tells the people to do. Four things again. Put on your sackcloth. Mourn for your sin. Cry out earnestly or strongly to God. Confession with a broken and crushed spirit. And he says, you must turn from your evil way of living. Repent. Even your violent way of living. Repent. And so he says this, and he's highlighting this. This is what... That this is what the author is trying to highlight, that here he recognized that God was angry. Look at verse 9. He goes, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that he may not perish. We may not perish. He was saying that because the Hebrew, the anger means the, the nostrils of a nose, like puffing. So angry, he's like, <laughs> and he's breathing because he's just fierce in his anger. And they were concerned and they wanted God to relent and remove the judgment. So what is true repentance? Well, we know it's not behavior modification. We know it's not weak or passive. It's not penance. It's not self-condemnation. It's not remorse. But I believe this is what it, it, it is. It's one with a convicted heart. I mean, this is where they were convicted. They were convicted of their violent, heinous act toward others. They were afraid that the divine God, who they heard of the story of saving the sailors, the Phoenician sailors in chapter 1, seeing Jonah being swallowed by a fish and then being discharged from the fish and still alive, they were convicted that what they were doing was wrong. It was evil. They didn't see it as evil but God helped them to see that it was evil. How many of us too, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I didn't see what I did was evil. In fact, I had a rational answer for everything. Back to disobedience and anger toward my parents, I had every right to have all that. But when God saved me and he opened my eyes and he showed me what I did, I can't even imagine my child ever being anything but a a 128th of me. Because of how I was, God helped me to see the evil that was in my heart. And now he saved me and he changed me. He revealed it to me. But when I got saved, I was convicted. When I got saved at a church, 
and the preacher was preaching and I was crying, physically crying, it was a conviction that fell over me. And there was guilt and shame that existed in me. And I said, God, I'm feeling guilty and shameful for my sin. And God's saying, I'll cleanse you. I got you. And see, that's what it is. See, conviction means that I'm bringing it before God. My sin is stopping me from being useful for the kingdom of God. I'm like, I can't cover it up. I can't remove the guilt. I can't remove the sin. I can't remove the shame. Only Christ can do that through his blood for the shed blood of Christ. That's all that can be done. Two is that we need to have a confessing heart because if we're convicted, it leads us to confessing. Simply admitting what God calls sin is sin. We must call it out. We must call it anger. We must call it pride. We must call it arrogance. We must call it envy. We must call it jealousy. Not because God is trying to call us out and judge us, because God is trying to get us at our attention so that we could take it before him. Remember what I said earlier. When I see sin in my life, I have an opportunity to say, God, where is my sin? I want to lay it before your throne. That's where God does a work with me. I hope he's doing a work with you. Because that's where true joy comes. That's where assurance comes. That's where peace comes. Because before there's peace, there's got to be war. The warring in the members of my body has to be at war and battling before I find peace. Before we can find resurrection of new life, I've got to die. Bruno has to die. But Christ has to be alive in him. And I don't understand that in my finite mind, but God's doing that every day. And if we mess up and we mess up, it's okay. God gives you another chance of hope because <coughs> he's compassionate. Third, we need to have a contrite heart. We need to be broken in spirit and willing to repent. Look with me at Psalm 51, 17. <coughs> because when you look at that, Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifice God desires are a humble spirit. Oh God, this is David, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. See, that word is contrite, but in actual another version, it's repentant. See, God desires a heart that repents. God desires a heart that hungers. He doesn't desire for us to have it all together, but he desires a passionate heart for him. Fourth, he wants to change our hearts. He wants us to repent, and that means turn about face. It's the U-turn. If you're driving down a road and you realize you went down the wrong road and God puts up the warning, look, listen, here's a warning. You're down the wrong road. The Holy Spirit says, hey, you got to turn around. Repent. That's what it is. So when your wife's telling you to turn around and you don't want to hear it from your wife and your kid, you're like, okay, let me hurry up and turn around or argue with them. No, I don't. I know I'm on the right road. I know I'm on the right road. I know. And then you keep going down the road and keep going down the road and you're like, Man, they're right again. They're right. And so you turn around, you say they're right, and you have to, you're right. And then I have to turn around. I have to U-turn because I have to confess I was wrong. I have to repent before my wife and my child. That's really hard. Maybe with God it's not as hard, but with my wife and my kids, yes, it's hard. And why? Because I was wrong. I have to admit it. And I got to work through that. <laughs> but here's the thing. What it does, though, when God is changing our heart, and he's given us peace and joy and hope and love. Look with me, and I didn't give them this, this verse, but just look with me to, to the same Psalm in 51 and just look back to verse 13 because this is what David was saying to the reader. He made it so clear, and, and, and it's just beautiful when he says this, but he goes, 
Lord, if you, if you created me a clean heart in verse 10 and you cast away, not, don't cast away your presence and restore me the joy of my salvation, verse 13, and he says, then I will teach transgressions, transgressors your ways and sinners to return to you. See, when God takes us through this process, when we, when we are convicted, confessing, contrite, and then God changes and we repent, then we're compassionate. Because then when someone else goes through it, we're not cocky or arrogant thinking, hey, can't you just get this together? What's wrong with you? And complain. We say, hey, come on, I want to show you. I went through this. See, I know in my life I've gone through that a lot, and I still do. But God is merciful because when he gives you and I a compassionate heart, we're going to reach those who are far away from, from God. And then he changes us and helps us to understand and gives us that compassion for the journey. God's not interested in the destination. He's interested in the journey. He's interested is that when the GPS is on, he doesn't want you to get too far ahead, and he doesn't want you to take the wrong turns. He wants you to trust in his GPS. And when he's taking you through that, his GPS, he wants to reach sinners, so he wants to take you along. Jonah missed this. God's saying, I want you to catch it. You know, in Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 42, Jesus mentions Jonah and Nineveh. And in uh, Matthew 12, 38, he says this, or it says this, then some of the experts in the law, along with some Pharisees, answered him. He says, teacher, we want to see a sign for you. And Jesus responds by saying, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so the man of God will, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand at a judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them. And now something greater than Jonah is here. I mean, he was telling the Pharisees, who were a pompous people who believed keeping the law, a very, just a selfish, pompous people who thought they had it all together, wanted to do the right thing, but failed to repent and confess their sin, thought they can, behavior modification is what they were doing in order to cover up their sin, was not was what repentance is. They were never remorseful for their sin, yet God was longing to reach those who were far away, who were wicked and evil, because he wanted to reach them, because he knew if he could share the greatest gift of Jesus Christ, they would come and repent. God longs for a repenting heart. He doesn't long for us to have it together. If you and I are trying to have it all together, then we're running around with our rights. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. God is saying, no, you have no right. You are a sinner. I want to change you and conform you to the image of my son. Will you let me work on you? We have a choice. See, repentance is a choice. Either you bow down before his presence or you cover it up and try to go the other way. Each one of us are called to that every day. You know, I was reading this passage all week, and i got to tell you something. I was on my knees. When I read verses 8 and 9 and saw what Nineveh did, and especially verse 6, when the king is sat in his ashes, I got down on my knees and just said, Lord, I'm sitting in my ashes because I am unworthy. I have no right. The only right I have is whatever right you give me. God wants to do that work in each one of us. You know, I found that, in closing here, I found this. When I have taken the wrong turns on wrong roads and are not willing to get help because I didn't want to swallow my pride, this is when I turn to my pride, my reputation, my behavior modification as a means of moving forward in my walk with Christ. 
I would liken this to driving a car in circles and always arriving to the same spot. Never growing but staying busy. I would always think I was growing but always found myself returning to the same place. See, true change, true change starts with confession of sin. There's nobody in this room, there's nobody who claims the name of Christ, there's no one who bears the name of Christ has any right to say they shouldn't confess and repent. You may not even know what you need to be repenting for. I don't even know what I need to be repenting, but God's saying we need to repent. And I want to encourage you this morning, and I have, this has nothing to do with what we're about to get into, but the Lord has been impressing on my heart all week. I even wrote the leaders yesterday and said, guys, I'm compelled to share with you. Right, guys? I'm compelled to share with you that you guys need to pray for a revival. Every revival in America, as I mentioned earlier, has the components of the word of God, prayer, confession, conviction, and the glory of God, and reformation. You know what reformation is? It has to start with repentance. Revivals need to be in every church, whether you're in a growing state or in a transitional state. But the choice is up to you. Unity can only come when we confess our sin and repent. But if you and I are holding on to any right that we have, it will not get us anywhere. We're back right back in the same spot. 